How have you been? Yeah, good, good. Uh, I just returned from Nordic Business Forum, a big business forum in uh, Finland, Helsinki. It's uh, been uh, quite some fun. I, I travel there every year. Always I have some inspiration and uh, and try to get some new authors, some new books, some new podcasts or something that I can take to my business. Do you have something similar in Germany uh, where you get some inspiration? Oh, there there's a ton of things. I mean, um, historically, Germany is considered to be one of the most complex jurisdictions in terms of tax. I don't know whether this is true, but it's it's complex. I think the U.S. have a very complex system as well, other countries as well. There are a lot of conferences, and um, I always, I mean, there's one in May that is close by in Wiesbaden, which basically deals with corporate tax. It's usually mm-hmm. very current. There are judges, there are people from the tax administration, uh, also uh, legal authors and commentators, professors from the university. So it's usually very, very insightful. And uh, there are others on international tax. This is usually a conference that is in um, November. Um, you know, there used to be physical meetings, but now, of course, after COVID, there's still a lot of online. But it's also very important to just see what people discuss and to see the issues. You know, sometimes you just see the issues, but you don't think they are so relevant. And then you talk to others and they say, no, 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 this is the issue. You know, mm. that's <laughs> so it's very important also to get the view of the academia on certain things. It's it's always interesting um, just to pick up on a recent topic. It's about um, minimum taxation. Turns out that Germany doesn't expect uh, more revenue than 20 million euros from the global minimum taxation. Of course, if you consider an economy like Germany, 20 million is really a drop in the bucket. And um, that the compliance costs will be substantially higher. So it's very interesting to see. And of course, that you only hear when you talk to people or go to panels. In uh, such a small country as Latvia, the, the compliance cost is huge, and, and actually it applies only to five head offices in the whole country and then 300 subsidiaries. But don't you think this is just the first step uh, so that if uh, it uh, is implemented uh, successfully, that uh, afterwards it will be replicated to more companies with uh, smaller turnovers? I'm not so sure about that. Germany introduced a qualified um, domestic minimum top-up tax. So there will be no low taxation in Germany. And of course, I think ultimately that was the goal that everybody says, look, if I don't tax it, somebody else will. So they all raise the bar, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And um, my impression is that this is where we will end. And at some point, these very onerous um, reporting obligations, I don't know whether they can stay because this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And um, the question is always, and, and I mean, I don't know whether you've seen that in Latvia as well, but we, for example, have obligations to submit uh, reports on um, certain tax structurings, the um, DAC 6 directive here in Germany. Of course, you will have that too. Um, we always wondered who reads these reports and yeah. how is uniform interpretation um, ascertained? For example, as law firm, we often have the issue that we receive structures that the big four have come up and we're just asked, what do you think about this? So, and, and there are decrees now in Germany where it says, well, then you're not an intermediary. If you're just giving, you know, second opinion advice, you're not the one person structuring. On, and even if you implement, it's, it's, you haven't come up with this. You're not the intermediary. And so mm-hmm. um, and, and the question is always, where does this end? And I think a lot goes into the ether and nothing comes back. In practice, do you submit a lot of uh, DAC 6 notices to the tax authorities? Hardly. Hardly. At least um, I don't. um, You know, many structures we see uh, don't. I mean, first of all, tax structuring uh, nowadays is not necessarily aimed aimed at uh, gaining certain arbitrage advantages. It's middle Mm -hmm. of the road. It's just the environment has changed in, in, in Germany and in Europe. You don't try to push the envelope. If you're a large corporate, you don't want trouble. So you walk middle of the road. So you fall out of that. And um, of course, there are certain hallmarks that I think are more critical. These are, of course, the um, CRM um, hallmarks. It's also the hallmarks where you deal with transfer pricing. I'm not doing the transfer pricing. But for example, if you just have a regular transfer of functions, yes, transfer of functions falls underneath the rules, but is it really 
um, an, an, a structure that is aimed at certain transfer pricing advantages. So I think one needs to really read this with a grain of salt. Of course, you are on the side of caution if you think you need to report, that's clear. But I think uh, personally, I don't see much. And this is also due to the fact that, for example, the transactional area, um, we basically implement what others have devised. So it's you just you just told, well, look, this is the structure. This is what EYPWC Deloitte wants. So we do that. I see. But we have started, uh, I, I think, uh, from a different end that we normally start our podcast. So uh, I suggest uh, we do start with uh, the usual uh, way, with the introduction. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Tax Stories uh, episode number 48. And this uh, time my guest is... Uh, Mr. Konrad Rode. Uh, Konrad is a tax partner at DLA law firm in Frankfurt, Germany, for more than 10 years. Konrad, maybe you would like to give some uh, more introduction to yourself. Yes, certainly. Thank you, Yanis, and uh, certainly thank you for having the opportunity to talk with you here. I hope also somebody will find that interesting. Now, what is uh, what about me? I'm I've been working in the tax arena for more than 20 years now. I started with a German local firm. I then moved to um, an international um, firm, an American firm that eventually went bankrupt, Dewey and LeBeuf. Thank God I wasn't an equity partner there, so I could move on. And uh, I worked for a short period of time, like three years for a boutique firm, but then moved on because I had a great opportunity here at DLA and I realized there's a lot one can build. Um, I'm now for more than 10 years a partner at DLA. I have various um, administrative functions here as well. For over six years, I was the location head, which is in essence the general practice group leader. I handed over to uh, one of my partners in 20 and at the end of 2019. Also for three and a half years, I was one of two country managing partners. So I was very involved in the development of the firm. And since uh, 2020, I'm now uh, a regular partner again, just busy with fee earning, meeting clients, reading interesting stuff. And thank God, not busy and worrying about um, uh, key performance indicators and profit and mm-hmm. allocations and so on and so forth. So Great. Great. About- I'm very honored to have you on, on the podcast. So thank thanks for your time. time. What is there in your life besides work, Conrad? What is there besides my my work. So it's uh, I'm married. I have two children, and uh, they are older now. One is already going to law school, and the other one is um, my daughter is 17. Besides work, uh, what do I do? I'm engaged in charities. Um, I'm on the board of um, uh, two foundations. We support students, and we regularly meet and discuss sort of scholarships and stipends. I'm also involved with the Order of St. John, which is a Protestant order, and they maintain hospitals um, and and old people's homes. And um, there, I'm, of course, as a tax lawyer, you're always involved with finances. So Mm. that's my contribution there. And then uh, I'm also helping another organization uh, with the administration of certain funds they've inherited. So I'm, I'm in the charitable sector. Um, I think this is important. You give back to people. You have knowledge if you're a tax lawyer. And you can really help. I think it's it's also it's it's a good thing. Great, great to hear that uh, we are giving back to the society. I'm also actually uh, part of a charity. We've uh, established charity Entrepreneurs for Peace, which is supporting Ukraine. I'm also in the Golf Federation of Latvia. So. Uh, great, great to see that you are also uh, uh, supporting different uh, uh, public initiatives. So where could people find some more information about your ch- uh, charities? Um, those are uh, the foundations were founded by wealthy families, so they are not public. Uh, the Order of St. John, that's, uh, of course, a public order. And um, yeah, there you can find a lot online. It's it's, a, it's an old order. It's it's. They have a long history and they do a lot. So um, Order of St. John, if you want to Google it, you'll find it. Great. I also saw that that you're not a big fan of social media. Why is that? And I thought it's uh, how the lawyers normally, their voice is heard in uh, this way. So first of all, how is it with social media? Maybe I'm just too old for social media to a certain degree. So I'm not on Instagram and Facebook. 
I also feel I don't want to stalk my children. That's just, uh, I think they would be embarrassed. So <laughs> better stay off it. LinkedIn is a good point. Um, I am on LinkedIn. Um, I I regularly check LinkedIn. Uh, it's it's I don't know how to say this. Maybe it's because I'm a senior partner. I'm I'm very busy, so it's I try to spend time on publications. I very much encourage my team to do it. Look, if mm. you are a senior partner and you've been 20 years in the business, you have your clients. Um, it's more for the younger people of your team, and I think they should also get a stage. So. For me, it's I don't um, I know that's what a lot of lawyers do. They have their team prepare things and they hog it, so to speak. I don't do that. I think um, if I prepare <clears throat> or publish something, then it's really what I have written and it's really something that I have done. And so uh, that's why I'm trying to um, if I publish something that's that I'm, you know, it's for whatever reason, I'm extremely busy in that area. I always tell myself every year I have the. Uh, how should I say, a New Year's resolution that I have one major publication and I always try that. It's just that I'm busy and uh, I've planned actually two publications now and let's see where we get. One is on the anti-hybrid rules. It's more in a, in a, a scientific journal. Um, I had one recently on Duck 7 platforms. I think that's where I published. And I also published um, a newspaper article and then I also put on LinkedIn which was on the um, ECJ decision um, uh, C537 of 20. Um, mm-hmm. And I published that in a large newspaper. Actually, um, Germany, it, it's, it's very interesting if you think about reach and how do you get people. Of course, LinkedIn is quick. People check LinkedIn. You have a lot of links. It shows up. I think if you want to really stand for a substantive issue, you must either present at conferences um, which is very tedious um, um, and, and a lot of work, but it's good. Or you publish in magazines where there are a lot of people read it and you really have a lot of audience. I, for example, had an article like three or four years ago, um, and it basically, I, I thought it's an issue that everybody knows. And within a day, it was translated into English and people from Silicon Valley called and said, what, what have you written there? <laughs> you know the issue. So All right. <laughs> shouldn't be surprised. So um, you're right. I don't publish that much on LinkedIn. Um, it's um, other people do. Other people do more, but I very strongly encourage my team to do that. So okay. But uh, speaking of your publications, you, you you've done so far. Uh, what are the closest topics uh, to your heart? The closest topics to my heart. Um, I think at the moment uh, the topics are international tax, and also tax related to the tech area. I think um, we, at least as a firm, um, we by far have not really looked into the potential there. And I always realize that when you talk to clients, um, the tax department is usually pretty aware of issues. The IP department, for example, as a subset of the legal department is not. And I think there are a lot of opportunities. And this also goes to, say, Duck 7 uh, which is, in essence, um, uh, obligations to report for certain electronic marketplaces and platforms. Um, but it goes a lot further. It goes to withholding tax. It goes to transfer pricing. It goes to set up the business model. Why does anybody do what in what country? How is that? Where is the value created? And of course, that's then ultimately tax planning, that you look, where is the value created? Um, where should the value be taxed? And can you change this? Um, it's, it's not really a transfer price. It is a transfer pricing issue. But it's even more than that. It's you really look before um, before you actually get to the actual implementation of an agreement. So if you ask me where my heart lies, I think that is a very interesting area at the moment. Um, and that's also tax-wise where my heart lies. Of course, I'm also a transactional tax lawyer, so I like deals. I think that's cool. There's a dynamic to it. You know, that's uh, when you do international tax, you think a lot. You just need to really sit down and undisturb come up with a plan. Um, deals have a certain dynamic. It's quick. Um, it, there are a lot of interdependencies. So, um, But if you really ask me in, in terms of tax, um, that's tech and international tax in that area. Hmm. You touched a good point about tech uh, industry. Uh, normally, additional value to our clients is where there are some uh, trigger points where we combine the knowledge of tax and legal where uh, we 
collaborate with other legal teams. Uh, how do you enhance this collaboration between the teams within your firm? Well, first of all, um, I work a lot for um, multinational tech clients, uh, also US-based. And in the US, we actually have a very strong culture already that um, tax and IPT, uh, IP technology group work together. In Germany, not so much. And usually what you have to do is that you talk to um, your partners and you tell them, look, there could be an issue. And then, of course, how do you develop business? You tell them there's an opportunity. If you look at this, it's not just me doing something. It's also you doing something. It's additional work. And actually, it's necessary. So it's not that you just make something up. It's something that the client really needs. And of course, it's business development for us. So at that point, we just say, look, we just, you know, we do it either for free the first couple of hours or for a relevant work for a relevant discount. But we want to really get into the relationship and really see how that is. And that's how you develop that. And um, I think there's a if you look at systematic approaches to develop developing clients and developing relationships, it's. Um, it's very difficult to approach a client you don't already have with a topic uh, that is new for the client. So what you can usually do is you either have the topic and you approach new clients or you have the client and then you approach them with the topic. So that's okay. it's it's so that's that's actually what we do. And we're such a large firm that we have good track records on many things. And um, for example, what I did recently, uh, not recently, I think actually the day before yesterday, um, was that I um, talked to my IP partners and we basically talked about um, the classification issues that you have as a tax lawyer. Just because you call something a license from an IP perspective, it doesn't mean it's a license from a tax perspective. So just just if you vet, uh, vet this, if you just say, look, just really think about this. What is the background and where would you like to be with the client and what should be your added value? I think there's a lot you can do. And uh, it's just about awareness and talking to clients and also be in the market for that. Speaking of different tax topics, uh, if we look either at tax or business in general, do you have any like gurus that you follow or that uh, give you inspiration from both, from, from professional or from business perspective? How should I put it? No, not really. I mean, I know some people where I read stuff they publish. Um, and I think this is always very interesting. There are some people, for example, a professor from the Max Planck Institute in, in, in Munich, uh, where I always, if I read something, I think that's really smart. The guy is really clever, you know, and, and he's much smarter than I am. So I really think about it. In terms of business, um, I don't really look at individuals. I usually look at organizations. I think the strength of a business law firm is, of course, the individual, but it's much rather that you have a strong good and coherent and cohesive organization that is strong in its values and that is systematically led. It's, it's in essence, the team wins the cup. It's not the individual. So there mm -hmm. are some firms where I think they do very well, but I am also long enough in the business to know that you cannot just say A does B and so B is right for everybody. It's not, that's not how that works. So in terms of business gurus, um, no, not really. It's, um, it's it's I just I just look what's what's good left and right, but that's uh, I'm not really okay. looking okay. anybody. Okay. Tell us your uh, elevator pitch about DLA and your tax practice. My elevator pitch. Um, that's very simple. If you want to work with nice people in a good environment that is appreciating and um, helpful and really looks after the individual, then come to us. If you want to work. Uh, for international clients, um, already be client-facing as a junior, work for us. If you want to um, really take responsibility and develop something where you are and you still have room to develop something, come to us. And your uh, tax practice, you, you, you cover, you have the largest network probably in the world to, to cover the taxes besides the big four. So uh, do, do you have a sort of a regular cooperation uh, within the network between uh, the tax practices? Quite a lot, actually. Um, we, um, well, first of all, I don't know whether we have the biggest or not, but we have a very big and substantial tax practice. So I would say that we have globally, um, we have about, I don't know, 
1,500 partners or something. We have about 100 tax partners globally. So I think that's quite big, if not more. We all, uh, have partners in all relevant jurisdictions. And so this basically leads us to what is our sweet spot. And then I come to how we cooperate on this. The sweet spot, on, or at least where we say we can uh, compete very efficiently and effectively, is with multinationals that have multinational issues, so cross-border issues, and not just necessarily in transactions. So it's outsourcing, it's data protection, it's IP planning, but it's also, of course, deals, transactions. And it's audits, for example, or transfer pricing. So um, what we do is we really look into these issues. We meet at least twice a year. We have two global client conferences, one in the US every year. And we just had one for in international, which is in essence outside um, uh, the US. So we met in Miami in March and uh, we met in Mallorca, the island in the Mediterranean um, with clients also including the Americans in just last week, basically. And um, so we cover, in essence, um, six areas of practice. We usually tell our clients it's transactional tax, it's international tax, it's transfer pricing, it's controversy, it's two degree private clients that is in certain jurisdictions only relevant like Italy and indirect taxes. And then we pitch from that on that basis. We say um, we need multiple touch points for relationships. Clients come, they're invited. They, of course, get really nice meals and nice events. And we really ask what they want to hear. And for example, I was chairing a panel on international corporate restructurings. So what we talk to clients, you, you say you have 60 clients in the room and or 50. And um, they are also split between asset managers here in this case and multinational corporations. And then you tell them, look, we, we have four people here now, somebody from Ireland, somebody from the US, Conrad and somebody else and somebody from Netherlands. So what are typical issues you encounter with this? So it's very practical. So it's it's um, it's really, look, in an audit, we see this. This is how you plan, how you structure against this. So if you are up to implementing something in Germany, take those four or five um, uh, takeaways with you. Um, same for the US and so on. That's, for example, a panel that I chaired. We also have very... Um, more aloof panels, how about um, uh, cooperative compliance? This is, for example, an issue. We also talked about um, country updates that's then more technical. So what can one see? It's also very interesting. Um, and I think that's also for the clients very relevant to know. For example, on certain provisions in the entry um, hybrid rules based on the ATAT 1 and 2 directives, uh, countries take different interpretations and draw different conclusions from the same fact pattern. So we had one where it, Italy issued a decree. Italy is always horrible. So it's uh, one can imagine how this goes. And it was very interesting the approach Germany would take to that fact pattern. And so we just compare. And I think this is what we do. Usually it's very well received by the clients. And one must also see, look, it's not proprietary knowledge. So it's not that one can say only DLA knows that. There are other good lawyers and advisors. It's more about the personal relationship. It's it's that you know that DLA is out there. You know that DLA can solve the issue. But that is, so to speak, expected. It's more about, do I find you nice? Do I think you really care about me? And I my experience with clients is, and winning clients is, they must feel that you take their issue seriously and their concerns and that you help them, that you really, you know, move forward for them and not just say, oh, this is so horrible and I don't know and it's your problem. Why didn't you come earlier? Nobody mm. wants to hear. It's, it's regarding clients. Do you have any management principles regarding your team? How, how did you build your team? And DLA is the type of firm where, uh, you know, you have very strict KPIs. You're very strongly uh, measured on your performance. And uh, as a partner, uh, as a senior partner, you're expected to have a larger team. So I have a team of five working for me, plus assistants um, and trainees. Um, so in terms of how do I manage my team? To be efficient in tax, you need senior people. It's different for an M&A partner. You can work with a third-year associate, and it's all fine. They don't. They just need to know the templates. They don't need to know substantive law. I mean, this is sometimes what I think. It's more about the transaction management in law in tax. You need people who really know what they're doing. I've done it for a while. So I usually work with uh, two or three members of my team who have um, yeah, seven to ten years experience or more. I was with also I also have a senior associate, um, uh, five or six years of experience. And then I took in also a junior associate. I also find it very rewarding and 
and interesting to talk to a junior. And of course, juniors are just guessing at the beginning. And um, But you need to train them. And I think this is a good thing. And so I really like this. We also share our teams here. So it's not my associates and your associates. It's um, we pool. And um, yeah, that has two reasons or two or three reasons. One is, of course, you know, sometimes a partner doesn't have that much to do, goes on vacation. I don't know what. But then these um, then the associates have uh, capacity. So why not use them? Also, it's very interesting uh, to work with associates from other teams because they have a different socialization. They have learned things differently. And uh, also, you know, you can't really plan work. Sometimes it comes as a wave and then you just need people to do it for you. And so that's why we do it. And um, so if you ask me what are relevant policies to manage a team, I think you really need to look that you have the right people because you can only assign work to people who know what they're doing. It's completely delusional to assign a difficult memorandum or letter to court to a first year associate. It just doesn't make sense. I think you need to have all levels of seniority. Um, and I think it's it's one should also, if you lead people, um, they need to feel that it's worth it working for you. And it's not just money. You need to talk to them. You need to take them seriously. You need to take the time for them. And of course, I'm busy. I'm running to a lot of appointments, but you need to need to speak with them and they need to feel that you notice them and that you're there and that they gain something and you take the time to develop them. Great advice. And thank you for your insights uh, into the your daily practices. Let's uh, look a little bit into the future. What uh, do you see as tendencies for the future regarding your tax practice development or tax systems in general? For example, I just finished one book it's called sovereign individual and uh, i it looks into the future uh, with a quite uh, uh, substantial idea that uh, uh, people will be more and more on the move uh, by the way but the book was written in 1997 now after covid we see that really people are moving more, much more than before and uh, the second idea was that actually more and more uh, people will be subcontracted for projects, not as employees. So uh, w- what would be your uh, insight into the future of, of work future, in tax? I think um, you can look at it um, in sort of in types of work and also in environment of work. So type of work, especially in a big law firm, um, artificial intelligence will play a role. Technolo- technological advancement will play a role. But I think this will be similar to, say, the uh, the development of Excel spreadsheets. You know, at the time when you had paper ledgers and you needed to do the accounting there, I think you just have instruments that are a lot better and will substitute a lot. I think there will, in terms of work and um, looking to future, what type of work we're going to do, there will always be the high-end work, the negotiations, the litigation, um, also the planning. There is going to be... Um, there will be work. And I think if I look into the future and I think, really think what, what will happen, of course, one only knows for the next three to five years, I would expect that transfer pricing will play a huge role in the international tax arena. 20 years ago, it was finding arbitrage, loopholes, uh, having the double sandwich structure through Ireland or something. Um, that's all not going to fly anymore. So it's all going to be a very different environment. So it's um, if you ask me, structuring will be there. Negotiations will be there. Um, what I think will be there in terms of work are a lot more audits and litigation. Um, states are fighting much more for their money. Audits, at least in Germany, have become a lot more contentious for whatever reason. Um, not always good. Um, sometimes the taxpayer is is wrong, but sometimes the taxpayer is also right. So it's and, and my experience is that you can achieve a lot if you have seasoned counsel there. So on the work, work environment, I think it's specific to Germany. I think a lot of um, colleagues will want to work flexibly, which means working, having the opportunity to work from home. But I also realize that a lot of people want to come in because they look for the social environment. They look for the traction with the team. They look for the interaction. They want to go to lunch. This implies in particular, if you're a junior, um, you're new to the city. You, you want to come in. You want to have lunch. You want to talk to people. And, and I think that's normal and that's what you should do. I think also training is very important. From experience, you, you can allow remote work, 
some people are good at it. Some people are not so good at it. I also think that you just need to talk about it a lot. I think the it, it shouldn't be that one says I can work from wherever. That never works. I just realized when I'm at home and I'm looking at my laptop, it's very different than being in the office where I can talk to my team directly, where I can print out papers much better. Um, and I also realized that from a personal perspective, it's a lot better to also go into the office and come home. When you're at home, you always leave the laptop open. You work more. And uh, I think this is also something that um, that is, is um, you know, when you read, you know, about evaluations of the COVID and the mobile working place, that's that's what comes out. There's another thing that I find very important. I know that this is um, this. It, there's always footnotes on this, but I think it shouldn't be neglected. I think um, people, when they stay alone too much, they it's, it, they get sad, they get depressive. And I think it's very important that you also have your environment and that you don't hide behind the screen or hide behind an email. Also think that interaction is a lot better. Um, if you have a difficult conversation, uh, don't do it by email. That's always horrible. Just meet and have it mediated and and, and just say what you think and, and why you think it. And um, I think that's that's people need to learn this. The interaction is very different. So I'm... I see a lot of challenges there. I don't know where it's going to go. You often hear that larger banks are requiring people to return to work. I think there's a good point to that. It will never be a five days a week in the office anymore. And I also think that uh, the office infrastructure will change. For example, we rented a lot of office space here in Frankfurt, um, assuming that everybody would come in every day unless you travel for business. And or you're on vacation, and that's not the case. So in other words, we don't need the space, and so that means that uh, lo and behold, we will reduce um, our office space. And um, whatever the solution is going to be, it could be that there's a, um, a hoteling system. It could also be I don't know where this is going to come out. That uh, you say who is really going to be in the office? If you're in the office, you keep your uh, individual office. Um, if not, you know you need to come in two three days, but then you sit open space. Open space is a highly discussed and controversial issue. I, I'm, I always think it, it can work if you plan generously, if it doesn't look like a chicken stable, you know, where everybody is like next to each other. Uh, I have certain qualms, but maybe that's because I'm old fashioned. It's about confidentiality. Um, you know, mm. if, if you do an M&A deal, the firm knows about it and, and, and it's usually not that problematic. Uh, but for example, if you do something that is uh, stock exchange relevant, that is regulatorily relevant. If you work on um, on a criminal investigation, I think you need to be able to close the door. And it's very difficult to always get up. So I'm, I'm, I'm really curious and wondering how this is going to be long term, but there will be solutions. So let's see. Great. I, I think you nailed uh, a lot of issues uh, coming uh, quite soon. And uh, I, like I said, I was in this uh, Nordic Business Forum uh, this week and uh, I heard many presentations about issues that you, you just mentioned. And uh, what, by the way, one of them was uh, loneliness. And, and uh, they even said that it's uh, healthier to smoke 15 cigarettes than to live without friends. <laughs> I believe that immediately. And it's, it's, it's a very difficult, difficult thing. And I also think that, that especially when you're young, um, but I mean, life models have changed. I mean, so that's, I can just say that, but I think it should also be an offer and if you think about DLA as a firm, um, I also told you you can do international work, you can develop things. So two things are really important for us um, here, and um, I hope we can really also live them, not just talk about them, is you should be entrepreneurial, should really develop something. So we are a firm where we don't say, look, there's a slot for a tax partner in the next five years, and that's it, or 10 years, like many other firms do that. It's more like there's a slot if you have a business. So build a business. Take the opportunity. Try to try to uh, take ownership of problems for clients because then you have a business case. That's mm. what they need. Um, and the other thing is that we really feel that it's important to have a good culture, talking to each other and being there. And um, that's why I'm also mentioning it. You should care. And mm. you realize with some very large firms, um, the associates are just inventory or to, to a large degree everybody says they'll be leaving after two, three years anyway. There's no room for them to stay here and have a career as a partner. 
So whatever, they should just work as much as I can get them to work. And then that's it. Yeah. One of the speakers at the business forum was uh, Timothy Ferris, who has written his bestseller about four hour working week. <laughs> so yeah. what do you think about that? Do you mean the four day working week? Four hour. Uh, four hour work week. Yes. Jesus. I just know the four day work week, but that's... Um, Well, I think it goes fundamentally to one point, how productive are you? And I think it's um, much better to say you have sort of a time budget. That's the psychological issue, I think, behind it, that you say you have a limited time budget to get something done. So you really try to be efficient. Um, as a law firm, that is very difficult because your output is measured by hours you put in. So the moment you put in four days instead of five days, you earn less money for the firm if you're billing through the hour. So one could say, of course, then you work part-time, you earn less and you have more free time, but that already exists. So I think that um, probably in the law firm world where you work on, on an billable hourly rate, it's a difficult proposition. I think the flip side to it is, is probably more important that it's not a value in itself to work seven days a week. I think that's much more the point that one must say what is really relevant and it's not always necessary. And so one should also accept that in, in, in an associate population or in a partner population, you have different uh, approaches towards how much you want to work and that that's okay. Mm -hmm. Difficult when you're in bed with the Americans because they think you should only work. They actually yeah. think you're lazy if you don't want to work seven days a week. So that's, <laughs> uh, no, I'm just exaggerating, yeah. of course, but It's uh, you realize that there are cultural differences. And I think that we in Europe, um, when we talk about certain soft factors, for especially um, for Americans, and, and I like my American colleagues a lot, but it, it doesn't play a big role. It's a very mm. different approach, also for the younger lawyers. Right. I haven't read, of course, the, uh, his bestseller book, but I think to a certain extent it makes sense, uh, especially seeing the development of uh, AI and, and uh, maybe subcontracting a lot of work and maybe this uh, billing by our uh, practice also might change one day in law firms. But uh, I saw that uh, if we speak about AI that uh, in the business forum, they showed uh, how already AI is compiling P&L statement and uh, the machines are suggesting ways of uh, increasing the profits uh, of a company. So <laughs> maybe we, we will see one day that, that we will do uh, something uh, completely different in our tax practices. Well, it's, it's an interesting issue. At the moment, I, um, I refer to transactions with corporate group. And for example, there we do the due diligence process uh, with the help of our um, legal um, delivery center, where they use Kira, for example. It's a software that helps you review large quantities of documents. So they look for certain mm. buzzwords, key topics, and for example, change of control, and they find it out. So it's not perfect, but it's pretty good. And that will certainly change. I think the pricing model is different. The question is then, how do you invoice your client? What for? And usually clients, I mean, I don't know how that is with you, but they usually ask for fee estimates and they want to have it broken down and they want to know what you do for what and they want to have a capped fee. But the starting point is always, how many fee earners do you have on that and what time do they spend? And so that's why it's very difficult to come to alternative fee arrangements. And plus, From a legal perspective, from an ethical perspective, you're prohibited, for example, to take contingency fees in Germany. I know that, that probably some lawyers do, especially in litigation cases, but there are very strict limits to that. I think getting away from the billable hour is what everybody talks about. But if you look at pricing, modeling and billing, you, you just can't because you need to find some way also of measuring contribution. And so maybe for a partner, much less so, because the partner is being measured not so much on his billable hours, but on the work that he or she generates for the team. 
But um, that's different. The associate is meant to be in and to do a lot of work. And uh, the last thing I want to mention about this business forum is, sorry about just uh, I'm full of emotions after after <laughs> the forum. But uh, at some point I got scared about the presentations about uh, not only AI uh, threats, but also about uh, the war and, and about uh, ESG, the climate change uh, of course, let's not talk about the war, but but uh, how do you see the taxation uh, uh, environment changing because of the climate change? Do you see the, a big impact on, on, on the tax systems? Tax systems, yes and no. I mean, especially in Germany with uh, uh, the Green Party as part of the government, this is a huge issue. Um, the problem is how do you really approach this ESG? And how do you really look at this? I think the first thing is acknowledging that it's there. And um, I think at least in Germany, where they are with other countries, I'm not so sure. They they pretty much don't care. So you need to do something about climate change. It is there and period. So, of course, what you need to try to reduce is energy consumption, because you need to reduce the consumption of natural resources. And you also need to protect the environment. So um, less uh, carbon oxide and so on and so forth. Um, I think the government here in Germany tries what they can do at the moment. They subsidize, for example, that you uh, exchange certain heating systems. They subsidize the isolation of buildings and so on and so forth. Um, I think that's all you can do, um, at least at the moment. I think it's not so much a tax question. I think it's more a question how is business affected by this. And I think Everybody will need to see that it's not just about the frogs and the toads that are in some pond and you can't build that. It's a lot more difficult and it's a lot broader. And um, I think the businesses face these challenges. They're regulatory challenges and also expectation. I mean, ESG is environmental, it's social, it's also governments um, that you also need to comply with certain regulations and how you want to do business. That's what people expect. Of course, will that change? Uh, will that bring back the Chinese to riding bicycles instead of cars? No, it will not. But probably will get them to have electronic cars and emit less um, you know, emissions. I think if there's going to be a huge change and, and there's going to be a change because the businesses will need to uh, adapt. That's, that's, I think, how it is. And then tax, as always, will follow. As our podcast is called Tech stories. Uh, maybe you have some story in your mind from your practice uh, of uh, many, many years. From my practice of many, many years. Um, of course, it's difficult. can talk about clients directly. One thing that I always find funny um, that everybody assumes in Germany everything is a tax issue. Of course, that's very helpful, but I always find it hilarious because it's often not. It's just a numbers issue. And so that's not tax, but often people confuse tax with numbers. Um, I think um, it's, it's tax dollars aren't per se funny, so I don't want to be uh, funny if I'm not. But I think it's uh, what's very interesting is how much it permeates everybody's life. And that's what I always find so interesting. It's an aspect you meet everywhere, every day. And um, the, 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 the problems, also the complexity, um, many people have, don't have the training that we have, so they don't see through these issues. So uh, what do I think in terms of tax, um, in terms of stories? I have a lot of war stories from audits. I think the, the, the most interesting thing for me is always how unpredictable tax is. Um, for example, you can have a change in law or a change in, in case law if you have an ongoing audit, and it can swing either way. It can be to your benefit or it can be to the benefit of the tax authorities. For example, I was and maybe it's it's not a funny story. It's just a war story. But I think it shows very well how that goes. Um, I was defending a high net worth individual in a structure that they had set up. And the authorities didn't want to accept it. And then for some reason, um, the law, the case law changed. And a certain feature of the structure wasn't accepted, which at, uh, at first look sounds bad. But since the... Um, and certain assessments were already final and binding. It basically meant that the exit was tax-free. So you see that and you're like, okay, and this is this shows how unpredictable these things are. And um, it also shows you shouldn't push the envelope if you want to have predictable uh, results. And But it also shows it can go both ways. And um, yeah. that's what I always think is uh, should not be forgotten about it. Right. Thanks. If we speak about uh, stories, uh, 
uh, would you share the story which is already public uh, that you shared on LinkedIn about your uh, going to the uh, European Court of Justice regarding the taxation of uh, German funds? Uh, was, was it your case? Yes, it's a public proceeding and I was also named on the ECJ documents yeah. as representing uh, the, um, one of the parties. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting story. Um, it's in essence a real estate fund, um, a Luxembourg real estate fund that invested in German real estate, pretty plain and simple. And um, a German domestic fund, it's an investment fund, a regulated investment fund under the usage directive. A German fund would have been exempt from tax and a non-German fund not. And so it's, you know, to us, it seems pretty obvious that this is an issue, right? And uh, why would you give an exemption to only domestic funds, and but not foreign funds? But the issue had not been decided yet with real estate investments, just with uh, share investments, with dividend income. And uh, of course, the issue behind that was much larger. It was about how are the investors taxed into such the unit holders of such a fund? And uh, the argument there was that you couldn't tax well, at least this was the argument. I'm not saying that it's true. You couldn't tax the unit holders of a non-German fund, which is not true. You can. You can just make them liable to uh, file tax returns in Germany. So there were a lot of issues also on, on the ability to withhold taxes on the fund level. There was also the argument that non-German funds cannot be forced to withhold German withholding tax. That's not true. They can. And the law actually was changed in 2018 and they now have to. Um, so all of that is very interesting, and that's why we went to court. But it shows also how long the case is. You know, it was a case that was dates back until 2008. And we basically had to go through first two instances here in Germany. Then we won that case in the European Court of Justice. And now we have the grand finale at some point also with the German Federal Tax Court. It, it, it shows many things. First of all, it shows that there's consistency in the jurisprudence and the decision of the European Court of Justice wasn't surprising to me. And I think, of course, it's always surprising. You never know what the justices do in, uh, you know, in Luxembourg. And, you know, they're in essence having the final say. But it's, it, it's, it's on in, you know, in line with what has been decided in the past. The other thing is, of course, it also shows how difficult it is to get your way and uh, to get your right. You know, if it takes so many years that you need to go to litigation, you need to be able to afford it. It then becomes a function of um, money because the values need to be big enough and the client needs to have enough money to do that. Um, and it also shows how fiercely um, contentious these things can become. So we'll see how this comes out now at the end. But I felt, uh, you know, it was a good result so far um, for our client. But I felt that the... Um, it's also a lesson to clients. That's what we tell them. It's, it's what we start, started talking about before. If you are a multinational company and you are not particularly keen on you know, legal spend, you just don't do anything that could become contentious because it's so difficult. And now non-German funds who were in Germany, they can uh, yeah. reclaim or will be able to reclaim some tax paid in Germany? That's how it's going to be, yes. Um, if the case is finally decided, of course, in under this mm -hmm. condition case in favor of the taxpayer. Yeah, I think the whole issue there is that Germany um, is an inbound investment destination. And there were a lot of funds set up, um, say, particularly in Luxembourg, investing into Germany. There were a lot of, uh, just take the regular mutual fund companies, and they just sold these fund units. And of course, they can, they first had to pay tax, and with withholding tax, it was withheld, and they didn't receive it, so can they claim it. And so what happened is, that a lot of claims were made and they in essence were uh, paused. They, they paused the procedures and said, we wait now what comes out here. And um, if you ask me, their claims waiting just for the years 2004 until two, uh, 2017 um, in the amount of billions of euros to be refunded. So this is a huge issue. And I think it's a it's a universal issue in the European Union. Uh, there are a lot of um, you know inbound investments by funds. I wouldn't be surprised if that was also the case in Latvia. And the question then is if um, you know Latvian companies withheld withholding tax, whether these uh, foreign funds can ask for a refund. They should under mm -hmm. that law. Or if they invest in real estate, they say if a domestic fund is exempt from tax, we can collect the um, rent 
free of tax. And of course, there's a lot of issues I also go into um, sort of very academic discussions. For example, does a country have a right per se to tax real estate income? And the European Court of Justice in that case said, no, then the real estate income just leaves Germany and it's not taxed. That's just what it is. So it's a very interesting point of view. And of course, this is all developing. Um, and I think this this case is, um, at least from what I've heard, and also, of course, I'm in a close environment here where everybody knows what we're doing. And um, But it's a re very relevant case. And I know the accounting firms in particular, they have really made a business out of this, at least some partners where they said, we advise funds and we try to rightly so win them the money back. And uh, would you demystify uh, the European court procedure? How long is it and how expensive is it to go to Europe to litigate it on a tax case? Um, we, we're still waiting for the final decision, which is uh, here in Germany, because, of course, after it has been referred, the court needs to pick up the procedure and decide. So let's hope that we win. I think if you if you look at the term of a procedure, if you ask me, it's easily um, eight to ten years then. Because it just takes time, you know, three years until the first instance um, decision. And then you need to have still gone already to uh, you need to have already gone through the administrative objection procedure. Then two or three years for the um, federal tax court and another two, three, at least for the European Court of Justice. And then to be back at it. So I would always say it takes if you want to go through the whole process, eight to ten years. It's. It's not much quicker. I don't know what the experience is in Latvia, but um, it's a tedious process. Yeah, it's 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 quite the same. Yeah, it's quite si similar, I would say. Yeah. Conrad, we are approaching end uh, of our one hour, so thanks thanks a lot for for your time and dedication to this uh, small project. Uh, like traditionally at the end of the podcast, I ask the same question to all my guests. So I heard in this uh, Nordic Business Forum, uh, Rebecca Henderson said uh, that purpose of life is to make a difference, enjoy life, uh, embrace relations. Would you like to add something to this definition or what would be your version of uh, meaning of life? I think it's pretty similar. I was once asked the, that question. Yeah a management or leadership seminar and i think the purpose is to make a difference for others that's it's never for yourself it's always for others excellent thank you uh, conrad i appreciate your time and uh, it was a uh, very interesting one hour with together with you and uh, hope uh, our listeners will enjoy and appreciate that too thank you Yanis, and you have a good day